So I read through this, it made me think of the ways, when I was a kid I started noticing this, obviously as an adult and in my current career path I've noticed this a lot, but when I was a kid I noticed that people tended to act differently around the pastor. You know, like the pastor would walk up and into a group of people and all of a sudden they might stop saying certain words or start saying other kinds of words. Both represented this sort of change of of character almost, this kind of shift in the conversation in order to accommodate the man who just walked up. Then I became a pastor, I started experiencing this thing for myself. The whole, sorry pastor, we'll change our language, always just kind of makes me laugh a little bit because it's not as if I'm like some kind of perfect guy that you have to like make sure my ears don't get destroyed or something by those words. It's kind of funny. This idea trickles into society too, and it has, on both ends of the spectrum, both kind of uh, this, uh, well, we can't talk badly about the holy man, but also um, pastors are then expected to do a certain thing, right? They're supposed, they're expected to act and speak in a certain way, and when they don't, there's kind of this double and triple judgment that can occur as a result of that. In our text today, we're going to be looking at the clergy. I use the word clergy in a general sense because we don't have priests like Israel did in those days. You know, I'm not a priest. Um, but we do have people who still work with God's people in that capacity. And so I'll use the word clergy and priests and pastor all kind of interchangeably here knowing that those things are, are different. At this point in my career... I can listen to a pastor preach and quickly give you a rundown of what his church is generally like, right? Obviously, there's going to be differences. There's going to be uh, kind of outlying sorts of conditions there. I don't want to end. Uh, I don't want to overestimate or underestimate my own influence at all. But the way that a pastor lives, the way that he preaches has a real effect on the people that are in the pews, right? And for Israel, the priests of Israel in that day had persisted in behavior that led their people to a horrible place. So as we take a close look at the priests of Israel, we're going to see that the priest or the, or the pastor is really no different than anyone else. They're sinners deserving judgment in need of a Savior, We'll see the Savior, Jesus, who is the Savior in Hosea's day, just as He is the Savior today. So we work through this passage, we'll consider it in three main ideas. The sins of the clergy, the sins of the people, and then finally, the steadfast love of the Lord. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Hosea chapter 4, reading it together in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns. And all who dwell in it languish, 
and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of the Lord, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them away, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains. They burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice the cult, are sacrificed with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember last week, we saw the end of Hosea's story, at least the last part we're going to hear, the end of his actual narrative story. It ended with Hosea being commanded to go again and to love his wife, Gomer, which entailed him purchasing her from her current employers and bringing her home. Why did God have Hosea do this? Well, he told us why he had her, or why he had Hosea do this. In chapter 3, verse 1, it said, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So even though, even though the fickle people of Israel loved raisin cakes more than God, he would deliver them anyway. We see this work itself out in the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of all prophecy, of course. And for those of us that are in him, we've experienced this ourselves. So as we move into the text today, we start the second section of this book, which is kind of the application of Hosea's real-life drama. Many commentators refer to Hosea's life as a kind of parable. 
Right? When we use the word parable, we have to be careful. Because again, it's not in the sense that it didn't happen. But it's kind of a story with a lesson. Unlike Aesop's fables, the parables of Scripture teach us that we are in need of a Savior. That's why Jesus taught in this way. So as we move into the rest of the book, it's almost as if our Lord is saying to us, and here is the meaning of this parable. Kind of like he had to do with the disciples several times in the Gospels. Again, I want to reiterate, Hosea, Gomer, their kids, all real people. But through the orchestration of a sovereign God, his story becomes our lesson. This application begins with another courtroom kind of session. Where we see the same kind of language that we saw back in chapter 2. That brings us to the first point, the sins of the clergy. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So it says the Lord has a controversy, or literally, the Lord brings a charge against his people. And then he lays out the charge. These charges are very, very full, right? That there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Break those down a little bit. Faithfulness here, more literal translation would probably be truth. There's no, there's no truth. It's kind of a commitment to what is right and wrong, kind of a uh, faithfulness to right and wrong. No steadfast love. In older translations, you'll see the word loving kindness used. This is a covenantal term displaying God's love for his people in the long term. It's kind of a, a love for them in spite of the things that are going on around them, right? This this kind of steadfast love. That's one of the reasons the translators changed that so that we would understand the, the long-term nature of that love. Well, the people do not demonstrate this kind of love for God. Rather, they have kind of a disloyal love. It's always on the move looking for the next thing. No knowledge of God, which in my estimation of reading the text is really the root cause of the whole thing. Because without knowledge, one cannot have faith or love. Paul echoes this same truth as he talks to us in Romans 10. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Right? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? Talking about Jesus. And he says, faith comes by hearing. How does hearing come? Through the word of God. Right? The preaching of the word brings this to us. These sins bring with them all sorts of different kinds of things, which is what we see outlined in the next verse. Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, which is basically a rundown of how not to do the Ten Commandments. For these sins, the land mourns. And he goes through what he means by the land mourning, even the birds and the beasts and the fish. As Paul tells us in Romans 8, that creation groans for this. It wasn't just that man fell, but because of man, all creation fell. All creation was then awaiting a day of reckoning. A person, each individual person, is liable to God if they've never once heard anyone preach about him. Let's make that clear. We read this from Psalm 19 today, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky shows his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. But the, the apostle, again in Romans 10, I encourage you to read 
that this week on your own as a follow-up to this. But the Apostle asks us rhetorically in Romans 10, how are they to hear without a preacher? Without someone actually bringing them God's Word? God knows this. When He looks at His people, He knows. These, these rules haven't changed when you get to Romans. And so then who does He turn on here in chapter 4? He turns on the clergy. Well, it's each person's responsibility to know God. It was the responsibility of the priest in Israel to preach about Him. Look with me at verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let none accused, for with you is my contention, O priest. It's with the priests themselves that his contention is with. And verse 6 really gets at the consequence here. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, meaning they didn't know God. And not knowing God, not knowing God is important, right? It means not knowing His law. It means not knowing what He requires of us. It means not knowing who He is. Instead, they do what was right in their own eyes, which is what we read from Judges this morning. We read in Judges 17, and really our entire study of Judges is just a kind of a caricature of that same idea, right? That they did what was right in their own eyes. Proverbs reminds us there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of it leads in death. Verse 9 and following, make sure that we understand the punishment to priests is no different than the punishment to the people. There's no protection for the clergy. Like priests, or like people, like priests. There will be no difference. If we read James, we know that those who teach are going to be judged even more strictly than those who don't. I think this is very important for all of us today, not only for those who teach the people of God, but for all the people of God. The church isn't divided into classes, pastors and then everyone else, or priests and then everyone else. What I mean is, though not everyone is a teacher, everyone is charged with learning actively. This means questioning what you hear, checking those things against God's Word, It means holding those in charge accountable, asking questions, being an active participant in your faith and your pursuit of the knowledge of God. You don't have to look far to see what happens when a church is passive and the pastor is allowed to run roughshod over the people. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Thankful for a church that actively learns here. I'm thankful for a larger denominational structure that doesn't idly allow men into the pulpit. It's very helpful for me. Yet we see when those problems arise, the people are not given a pass either. I think that's very important here. It's not just the priests and the pastor that are going to be dealt with, but the people are also dealt with. And that brings us to the second point, the sins of the people. Look with me at verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. This speaks directly to the idolatry of the people who inquire of a piece of wood, or some kind of idol, maybe specific, maybe not. This piece of wood maybe 
referring to a specific God? Probably not. Hosea is comparing an idol to a walking stick, which I see as a kind of parody sort of thing. The thing that you would use as a tool to help you walk is also something that you'd look to and ask it questions and request things of it. The closest thing to this in that in that area was the Asherah, the Canaanite fertility god, which was associated with groups of sacred trees, which is what you have this these oak and poplar and terebinth here listed there in verse 13. And you can just imagine what's going on here. The people of God are taking these pieces of wood and kind of asking it things, right? We're making requests, taking a stick and asking for health and prosperity, which should seem absolutely ridiculous to us, but that's idolatry, asking something from absolutely nothing. And the second part of 12, make sure that we understand this asking sticks questions isn't just funny. It's idolatry. It's spiritual adultery against a jealous God. He goes on to speak of this in verse 13. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. He speaks here of the places they're making sacrifices, again, dealing with those sacred trees. But notice the Lord makes sure that we understand the true motive behind their choice of tree. What is their choice? Because the shade is good. It's just like the raisin cakes that we talked about last week. This week, the true choice of where they make their sacrifice has nothing to do with the tree or the God that inhabits that tree, which is no God at all, of course, we know but the fact that one tree gives more relief from the sun than another tree does. Trading the comfort of shade for the only living and true God. The next part is important because too often we read about adultery and idolatry in the Old Testament. I think it's important for us because we get the feeling, you know, as we read through this and we're reading about Gomer kind of being the picture of us in the story, and I think we get the feeling that maybe women are focused on quite a bit, and it's not that the men are excused at all, but the women are used as an example a lot of times, but you see in 14 that the men are left without excuse as well. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and the people without understanding shall come to ruin. The idea here is that the women are not the only guilty party. It is not a man-woman thing. Again, ultimately, it's a knowledge of God problem. A people without understanding shall come to ruin. Why don't they understand? Well, they need a preacher. They need to hear the truth. But why don't they always act on it? Even when they hear it. Hosea was faithful to God's Word. It wasn't that they didn't have preachers and priests that weren't faithful. But it's because they're dead in their sins. They have hearts of stone. They need to be changed from the inside out in order to respond to the truth of God. In order to be faithful... In order to love God, in order to know God, they have to first be given faith. 
They first have to be loved by God. They have to be known by God. It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in 1.17 that the Lord, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of Him. We know Him because He first knew us. He caused us to know Him. This is not something that we can conjure up ourselves. Without an intervention of God Himself, we are lost for a lack of knowledge. And while the clergy must endeavor, of course, to make Him known, it is ultimately God Himself that makes this knowledge to be realized. And that brings us to the last point, the steadfast love of the Lord. Look with me again at verse 15. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth and swear not as the Lord lives. Notice you have a little shift here. We move from the judgment of Israel, the northern kingdom, to a warning of Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. He was prophesying the doom that would come on them because of the nation of Assyria that would come and send them into exile. Yet, Judah here is warned, lest they fall into the same kind of dilemma, which we know from the scriptures that that is exactly what they're going to do later. They are warned, enter not into Gilgal or Beth-Avon. Gilgal is a historical site of worship for the northern kingdom, but had been turned into a place of pagan worship. The same with Beth-Avon. Probably Beth-Avon may not be a familiar place to you, but the word Bethel, if you've read scripture at all, probably is. It's because this is referring to the same place. The word Bethel literally means the house of God. Beth-Avon means the house of evil. Both are historic places of worship, important to the people of God, but now they are being used to worship a pagan God. So God warns Judah, don't go to these places. Don't say as the Lord lives when you go to these places, which is a kind of oath. Don't be guilty of swearing. You know, we see him back in chapter, or in verse 2 of this chapter, that that's exactly what Israel was guilty of. Don't swear before a false God. Is exactly what he's saying. But God knows his people. They're stubborn. Israel is stubborn. We see that in 16. And he asks a kind of rhetorical question. Can the Lord now feed them? Because of their stubbornness, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? We're kind of left hanging in this passage this week. The following verses tell us that Ephraim in the north was joined to idols, which is literally tied to them. They're tied to idols. Leave them alone. While today's passage leaves us hanging, the rest of the book of Hosea, the rest of the Bible indeed does not. Can God feed a stubborn people? Yes, He can. He does. Can God take those, make those who do not know Him to know Him? He can. He does. When Jesus came, He made God known. Jesus is the God-man. God became man and dwelt among us. That we could, that we should know Him. Not only that, but He took our hearts of stone, our stubborn hearts, and made them into hearts of flesh. 
He's changing us. He changed us. He made us right with a holy God who no longer calls us a stubborn people, but instead a nation of priests, a holy people. Not because we've straightened up and figured it out, but because we wear the very righteousness of Christ. For the believer here, the call is clear. What should we do if they were judged for a lack of faith, a lack of love, and a lack of knowledge? Have faith. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Know God. Always make sure that those who teach you are leading you in this way. Don't negate your responsibility to teach others in this way. We all have someone that needs us to teach them these things. And we all have someone that we must hold accountable to teach us. Turn from your stubborn ways. The same God who changed you is calling you to live according to His truth, according to His Word. Be faithful. Love Him by doing what He commands. Know Him more and more. For the unbeliever here, you're also called to know God. Make sure we understand this. This is not just to the people of God, but to all people. Your command is also to know God. You know God. You know Him just by looking out the window. But that's not enough. You have to know His Son. You can only know Him. Or in order to know God, you have to know Jesus. Jesus said no one has ever seen God, but the only God, the one who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, He has made Him known. You must call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. No one can come to the Father except through Him. And without coming to the Father, you are doomed to eternal punishment. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus today and be saved. The people of Hosea's day were changed. In conclusion, the people of Hosea's day were changed with a lack of faithfulness, love, and knowledge of God. So let us, brothers and sisters in Christ, endeavor toward these things. Not to earn our spot. Jesus has done that for us already but that we might show our love for Him, that we might demonstrate faithfulness, that we might know Him more, and let us then spread that knowledge of Christ to a lost world. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, You call us to be true to your word, you don't call us to be perfect communicators, because we can't do that, but you do call us to be faithful. So Lord, we pray that we would do that, that you would help us to do that, that you would show us those places in our lives where we aren't faithful, that you would show us, Lord, how we ought to love you, that you would show us how we should know you more that you would show us Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen. Please stand with me now as we sing our response to God's Word.